a positive, either had or have a positive uh, or negative impact upon our lives. For some, a life-changing event could be uh, someone's first pregnancy. It could be a second pregnancy a year after the first one. A life-changing event can be, uh, could be a graduating from high school. It could be graduating from college. A life-changing event could be um, going to another state, starting a new career. It could be having life-changing event could be having a bad or good relationships with others. It could be a terminal illness. Every decision or uninspected circumstance can be a life-changing event that alter the future of our lives and the lives of other people. And the earth has witnessed many events that change the course of history and future. Uh, those events were, are deemed as remarkable, they're deemed as historic, they are, or just horrific. Nevertheless, whatever those events were, it altered the future and shaped our worldview. Allow me to give you several examples to illustrate this of how past events shape our present reality. Throughout history, man has warred against each other and war determined the outcome and the future. For example, the ramifications of the American Civil War determined the freedom of slaves. It determined uh, the unification of the southern states to rejoin the Union uh, after the northern states won the war, slaves were freed. Southern states rejoined the Union. This is why America is considered the United States of America. If Confederate States of America would have won the Civil War, one can only imagine how life would be like today. In terms of engineering, in December of 1903, the Wright brothers successfully built and flew the first manned aircraft. The invention of airplanes revolutionized how people travel today. In today's time, people heavily rely on airplanes. If they travel across the country, if they're especially they're traveling outside of the country, very rare that people drive in cars unless you're a truck driver to another state. Nations use airplanes to defend themselves. And we all know, tragically speaking, commercial airplanes were used uh, in the attack on 9-11. There were many failures in terms of space exploration, there were many failures and successes that occurred. 
one of the most significant space exploration that happened was in 1945 when Neil Armstrong, along with other astronauts, uh, flew and landed on the moon. We all know the saying, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Space exploration has continued to the point where we can pull up on our cell phones and look at the robotic rover that landed on Mars and look at live images. In fact, we can look at different types of planets within our solar system. All because of space exploration. All because of a past event that changed and altered the future. Life-changing events happens all the time. Many more will come to pass that will change our reality and the future reality. I mean, reality. Uh, for example, if the Cleveland Browns uh, win a Super Bowl, that will be a life-changing event. For many sports fans, in fact, if that happens, anything is possible. Nevertheless, all in any event that occur in human history falls short to the only event that altered history and future and time itself. The single greatest event that changed the fabric of reality is the conception of Jesus and him being born into this world. Every life-changing event is trivial compared to the conception and birth of Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation of the universe in this world is deemed as a miracle within itself. According to God's good pleasure to create everything that he wanted to create is a miracle. Scripture says the heavens declares the glory of God in the sky above proclaim his handiwork. But if you think about that. Even creation, everything that we know to be true, creation itself is incomparable with the conception and birth of Christ. There is nothing in this world or in the universe that is equally exclusive to the divine act of Jesus being born as a baby. So I emphasize that so much. Because we're speaking of Jesus' incarnation. His incarnation simply is, is hard to explain because we're actually saying Jesus is God who became flesh. This is exactly what Scripture says. That the word of God became flesh. The second person of the Trinity decided to dwell in human form. 
in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. It says, Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And been found in human form. So when we speak of Christ has been born, when we speak of his incarnation, and again, incarnation means that you are dwelling in something, you become like something. But when we speak of this, we're saying that Jesus is 100% God. And 100% man. He is fully God and he is fully man. This is why the birth of Jesus is the most significant event that ever took place and will ever take place in history. God specifically, and as we look at today's text, we come to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. By the way, today's sermon title is The Glory of God, The Glory of God's, uh, sorry, <laughs> The Glory of God, Jesus Christ, The Glory of God, Jesus Christ. But when we look at this particular text, God specifically made a covenant with David promising him that the throne will be established forever. This is something that we have learned, we have discussed this, leading up to this point that God needed to fulfill his covenant, his covenant that he made with David. We have learned that Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And when I'm bringing this up, because this demonstrates to us that God needed to fulfill his covenant. Micah uh, prophesied in saying, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So the verse is in chapter chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. We notice that Caesar Augustus issued a decree and that all citizens of the Roman Empire had to go back to their hometown to register for this tax census. All of this was God's doing. Unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus, Joseph and Mary, the tax uh, registration was used for own, God's own purposes. God used the actions of Caesar Augustus 
to make sure that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2. And the the scripture says about this in terms of how God providentially moved people. He said, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever he will, according to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. And God turned the heart of Caesar Augustus to issue this decree so that his son, Jesus, will be born in Bethlehem, as it is written in Scripture. This brings us to our text this morning. Three things I want you to realize. I want you to realize the shepherds receiving the good news from angels. The shepherds receiving good news from the angels. Second, the glory of the Lord hinges upon Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord hinges on Jesus Christ. And third, the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord is Christ himself, is Jesus himself. So we come upon verse 8. Joseph and Mary, they travel from Bethlehem, I mean from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And if you look at verse 8, you would see it specifically says that the shepherds were in the same region. After Mary and Joseph arrived at their destination, Mary gave birth to Jesus. She wrapped him in in baby clothing and similar to the wrappings of a mummy and laid him in a feed trough where animals were fed out of. And verse 7 says, There was no place for them in the end, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. That means that there was no other suitable place for them. The text says is that Caesar Augustus' issue forced everybody to migrate from one place to their hometown, causing a influx of people in one local area. So, this is indicative to the fact that the only place for Mary and Joseph to sleep on that starry night was inside a cave filled with animals. In the house of in first century, houses was built upon caves. So you have a cave at the bottom where they store animals, and on top of that, you will have the housing or quarters. And the Jewish people were known for their hospitality. So they would have offered Joseph and Mary a place to stay if they had an extra room. But the only thing that they that was available was a cave where they kept the animals. So in in our sermon text this morning, Luke introduces 
shepherds into the birth narrative of Jesus. Sheep, um, as you see in verse 8, it says, In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. Sheep were kept out in the fields during the day. In the evening, they were moved into the sheepfolds where they could be protected from predators like wolves or thieves. And the shepherds were located not in Bethlehem, but they were located in Jerusalem, near the temple, in a field, guarding their sheep by night. And that was the same night that Jesus was born. It was the same night that took place for the shepherds. So I, you think about how far Jerusalem and Bethlehem is. Because sooner or later we will realize that they receive a sign from the angels to go see the Messiah that was born into this world. They had to travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is six to ten miles on foot, leading their sheep as well. If we travel ten miles, it would probably take us less than ten minutes. Or 15 minutes, depending on traffic, or 30 minutes, if you ask Mrs. Uh, Miss Debbie, this season, Miss Debbie. Um, but but the point is, it doesn't take us long to travel at all. It took them hours to travel, up to five to six hours to travel for six to ten miles, and they are doing this. On the same night that Jesus was born. Israel has a rich history of shepherds. Uh, starting with Abraham down to Jacob his and his sons, they were all shepherds. When you read through uh, Exodus, actually Genesis, and you get to the story of Joseph. You would know that the Egyptians were counted shepherds as abominable. It was an abomination to the Egyptians because Joseph and his family were shepherds. The word shepherd is also used as an expression to represent kings and priests and leaders or judges in Israel. God is also represented as the great shepherd who guided his people from physical danger and spiritual danger. For example, in Psalms chapter 80, verse 1, it says, Give ear, O Lord, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Jacob like a flock. It went on to say, O Lord, Save your people and be their shepherd and carry them forever. And we all know the famous Christian scripture quote, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. 
So there is a lot of symbolism between the shepherds and Jesus. So it's very interesting that God chose these shepherds to go meet the great shepherd that was born. Even Jesus referred to himself as the shepherd of all shepherds. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is the shepherd that went after the lost um, sheep and left the 99. So I think it's very fitting for God to choose shepherds to receive the good news, to be the first recipients of the good news of the gospel. As we see in verse 9, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. As the shepherds were watching their flock by night as they normally do, their nights of normalcy were shattered in an unexpected and dramatic way. Their normal routine changed because suddenly an angel appeared to the shepherds. appeared to them. The Greek translation has a stronger, a stronger uh, nuance for verse 9. It's actually, it literally says that the angel stood near them. The angel was up close invading their personal space. So we can imagine how frightened they were. Many of us don't like anyone jumping out of hidden spaces to scare us. We will literally or figuratively jump out of our skin. Imagine how the shepherds felt when the angel appeared and stood near them. They were afraid. They were terrified. And we have learned this so far. This is not the first occasion. The first occasion happened with Zechariah when he was standing in the temple and the angel Gabriel appeared on the right side of the altar of the temple, inside the temple. And the angel said to Zechariah, fear not. That happened again. And uh, with Mary, Mary had the same visitation by the same angel, Gabriel. And he told Mary to fear not, he comes with good news or glad tidings, as the KJV will say. So here we have an angel, and I like to believe, although it doesn't specifically say that this particular angel is the same angel in chapter 1, which is Gabriel. I believe this angel was Gabriel. 
you know. And the reason I believe that, or Scripture lead me to believe this, is because angels have a ministry to do. They have a calling. God calls angels to work out his own plan. And they have a desire to do that. Now, we know in the book of Jude and also in Second Peter that there are good and bad angels who left their position of authority and rebel against God. And there are angels who, 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 who does God's bidding because they understand and they are expecting the expecting the outcome of what God would do with humankind. They're waiting to see how things would take place. They're eagerly expecting to see how God is going to save men. They're waiting for the completion of God's so angels are used throughout scripture and god will use bad angels to further his sovereign plan he will use good angels to do that as well and we know in matthew chapter 4 verse 11 that angels were uh, there after the temptation of jesus going through the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights angels were there to minister to jesus himself so angels plays an important role because they are ministering spirits according to scripture. And this particular angel, who I believe is Gabriel, is sharing the good news to the shepherds. And what I want you to look at this Look at verse 9 and notice what it says. It says, And the angel of the, of the Lord appeared to them, and the, Lord, uh, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. This glory is not coming from the angel. This glory is coming from God himself. And this is privy to this particular text, because God's glory is, show, is pointing towards his son, Jesus Christ. It is solidifying who Christ is. We see that in verse 14 as well. It says, glory to God in the highest on earth. This is when the angels were praising and worshiping God because they have delivered good news to the shepherds and they identify who Jesus Christ is. And what is the good news according to this angel? 
what is the good news? Well, look at verse 10. After the angel said, fear not, told them not to uh, fear. In verse 10, he said, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for that will be for all people. I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all people. You know, good news means to, uh, the Greek text actually say evangelion. That's where we get our word evangelize from. Because we are sharing the good news to people. We all understand if there's good news, then there's bad news. So we warn people of the bad news and tell them, hey, here is the good news. And this is exactly what the angel did. But this news, although it's similar in the same, in a sense, is far better than the news that we kind of share on time to time. What do I mean by that? This news was first presented to the shepherds. I wish I was there to first receive this great joy, this news. I would have been ecstatic. I don't like in, I don't lessen uh, the gospel by no, by no means. But the heightening of an angel appearing and the glory of God shining around the shepherds, heightening the, uh, the, the realistic na- or the severity of the nature of this particular good news. When I first received the good news, I felt the weight of my sin. I felt the burden of my sin upon my shoulders because God, the Holy Spirit, convicted me. And I responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. So the good news points towards Christ. Look at what the angel said. He said in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is in the city, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. After pronouncing good news to the shepherds, the angel described to the shepherds that Jesus is a Savior. He is the Christ and he is the Lord. Three titles, but all three titles are synonymous to each other. This is a description of who Jesus is. I'm sure when all of us were born, we didn't receive titles. Now, some of you, or I guess majority of you call me pastor. That is the title, but my name is Travis, as you already know. Your title may be teacher. It may be sir to some. Those are titles. 
which bear importance of who you are as an individual. But the titles that this angel pronounced to the shepherds bear who Christ is. That he is a savior. He is Christ and Lord. The Christmas carol asks this question. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap? This is the most important question that anyone should ask themselves. Why does this child receive so much attention every year? Why is the calendar years, our calendar, is based on this child's birth? Why is this child praised and worshipped by millions of people? Why is this child different from other children? Why does this child have authority to determine the eternity of all people? What child is this? The answer to this question is found in what the angel said to the shepherds. Again, the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is savior, who is a Savior in Christ the Lord. First, this child is a Savior. A Savior was born unto us. The name Jesus was a popular name in the first century. But what separates the Lord Jesus' name from other first century babies who were named Jesus is that the Lord Jesus is a Savior. We know that Jesus' name means Emmanuel saves. So it's appropriate for the angel to give him the proper title as Savior. We hear people say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. They make that profession. I have observed that some people do not understand when uh, what it truly means when they say that Jesus is their Savior. That's not presumptions of me. I'm just basing that off observation. And I, and if people do not understand this, of why their uh, Jesus is their Savior, it is because they never thought or asked the appropriate question. Why do people need a Savior? What will they be saved from? You need a Savior? You need to be rescued. You know, God, some of you already know that God has rescued me uh, from, and many others, from the teachings of the prosperity gospel. When I was under that type of belief system, I would hear false teachers say 
that God will save you from sickness. God will save you from a bad marriage. God will save you from financial debt. God will save you from depression and unfulfillment in life. God will save you. Essentially speaking, while we're living on this earth, Jesus, they will also say, Jesus has saved us from everything, from all things. So that type of teachings go to say that your best life is now. But that's not true. Jesus hasn't saved us from all things. Your best life is not now. Um, In a sense, I understand when prosperity preachers teach that type of doctrine, that those type of things, you can have everything today. I kind of understand it. But for the most part, those things are only a byproduct, and they're not guaranteed. Those things are a byproduct of salvation. And even then, you may not have a good marriage. You will probably still be in debt if you're not spiritually and mentally and intellectually wise. You probably go through depression. You probably still feel unfulfilled in life when it comes to your dreams and desires. So that's a far reach to say that Jesus has saved us from all things. In fact, the prosperity gospel is a blasphemous doctrine that deceives people. Pastor John MacArthur says this. The word savior implies that we need to be saved from something. Save is a synonym for rescue. It is a synonym for delivered. And it implies that there's some kind of threatening condition. There's some kind of dangerous condition. Some kind of desperate condition. Some kind of deadly condition from which we need to be rescued. So, to understand why a Savior was born, we must understand that we need to be rescued from something in particular. The universal problem that humanity faces is sin and guilt. Sin and guilt. This is the world's problem. The greatest problem. Sin brings judgment upon the guilty. Everyone who sinned against a holy God and has broken his laws stand in judgment. I remember talking to one of my kiddos. And I told them that it doesn't matter if you break one sin, it doesn't matter how minute that sin may be. It could be stealing chocolate candy for your mother. 
you have broken God's law. Because God said, honor thy father and your mother. And that little minute sin that you think so small is very big in God's eyes. And unfortunately, if someone stands guilty upon that sin, they stand in judgment and eternal punishment as well. This is how God takes sin seriously. We can rationalize, okay, well, that's just a little white lie. Oh, uh, that's okay. That little uh, chocolate that he took, it it was only worth five cents. Yeah, we rationalize and try to, to sugarcoat things, but the bottom line is we still broken God's law. And this is the point. This is humanity's problem. Sin and guilt. Scripture says, it is a fearful thing to fall in a hand in the hands of a living of the living God. So in order to for anyone to be rescued, to be saved, to be delivered, they must accept the fact that they cannot save themselves. They will have they would need someone else who is objectively outside of their circumstances to rescue them from their circumstances. I never heard a drowning person say, I can save myself. I always know that a drowning person waiting for somebody else to rescue them from their demise. And just like that, a rescuer that jumped into this world, that stepped off his throne, was Jesus Christ. And he came outside of this world into this world to save sinners, to rescue sinners. The second person of the Trinity entered time and space to dwell in flesh, being born of a woman, so that he can redeem humanity by saving them from the consequences of sin and guilt. We cannot save ourselves. We do not have the power to save ourselves. If if God leaves us to our own uh, devices, if he just removes his hand, from our lives, the consequence of that is that we are in desperate, we will be in desperate need for a helping hand. We will allow ourselves to, uh, to follow after our own sinful habits or sinful nature. This is why Scripture says what it says when it comes to salvation. That salvation belongs to the Lord. 
This is God reaching his hand into our lives to save us. If it was left up to us, if it was left up to me, I would have rejected God's grace. I would have rejected God's mercy. And I would live my life up to the fullest until I died. But since God is gracious and merciful, he took the initiative to save me. It takes someone outside of ourselves, meaning God, to save us. The Christmas message is not about Santa Claus. It's not about shopping for presents. It's not about vacationing for holidays. The Christmas message is about the God-man, Jesus Christ, coming into this world and saving sinners. And this is exactly what Paul said in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Paul said, of this man, offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised. But as we also see, that Jesus is not only Savior, but he is also Christ and Lord. These are the titles that the angel also said to the shepherd. Savior, Christ, and Lord. This is a start different from other people titles. This is when, again, when it comes to the titles of Savior, Christ, and Lord, Jesus is, points directly to Jesus' deity. The word Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. We can liken that to say that Christ was anointed to be the mediator between God and man. He intercedes upon our, upon, uh, for our behalf. But Lord takes on a new dynamic. In the first century, 80 of the Roman Empire, 80% of the population was slaves. So the combination of someone saying that they are Lord, people would have understood that term. If you are Lord over someone, in particular of a slave, you have absolute authority to do what you will to that individual. So in the Old Testament, the equivalent for Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is Lord. The ideal here in our text is that Christ is God. He is Lord over all. As I share with many people, 
Is Christ Lord to you? Is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Christ? The significance of this is that we say that he is Lord, but does he truly have every authority, all rights to our lives? Do we truly submit to him like a slave? To be obedient to him, to his beck and calling? Because this is what the word Lord means. To have exclusive rights of what we do and how we do it, and when we do it. As the story continues, in the following verses, 12 and through 14, the, uh, the angel said, in verse 12, a sign for you will be, you will find a sign, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and land in a manger, that's an ordinary sign. There's nothing too special about that. A lot of first century um, mothers wrap their babies in swaddling cloths or baby clothing. That's not the sign itself. The sign is that the baby is laying in a manger. And this is important because we're talking about God, uh, the God-man, stepping off his throne to come to a humble and lowly place. And the angel is saying, there you will find the Christ, I mean, there you will find the Savior, Christ, and Lord. You will find him in a manger. And as the story continues, it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who with whom he is pleased. As I said before, angels have a purpose. They have brought the oracles of God according to Scripture. They have brought the good news to these shepherds. And they are waiting for the completion of of God's plan to see how he is going to work out the salvation of all people. Well, for some people, I should say. Don't want to sound like a universalist. So they're praising God. But what is most significant here is that not only one angel showed up to the shepherds, the heavenly host showed up to the shepherds. Everything and every spirit and everybody, even the glory of God himself, is pointing to his son, Jesus Christ. This is the reason why multiple angels showed up. Scripture says in Psalms chapter 148, verses 1 through 2, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. 
So when the angels, the multitude of angels, or heavenly hosts, start praising God, they were not only praising God the Father, but they were praising God the Son. This is why the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord does only, um, the glory of the Lord only illuminates when it is pointing to himself. In this particular case, it is pointing to Jesus. Very quick story as I come to a close. When Moses said, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, no man shall see me and live. But he told Moses to hide behind a rock, in which he did. And God's backside passed by Moses. And after Moses received or saw a reflection of God's glory, later on we read in the story that Moses' face starts shining because of the glory of the Lord. That is the point. God saves people for the sake of his own glory. When scripture says in the KJV that God is a jealous God, it means something. It means that he is doing it for for his own self-pleasure. Whatever God do, it is for his own glory. And we're we're watching here, and we have read here that God's glory is pointing to Jesus. It is pointing to himself. Again, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, I mean, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So who is this? What child is this that laid in Mary's lap? It's God's son. It is the second person of the Trinity. And it is Jesus who is the epitome of God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask you that you would press it upon our hearts. I pray that whatever wasn't said, that you will speak to them by your spirit. You will show them the point of your message the point of of Jesus coming into this world. I pray that you illuminate their minds and illuminate their hearts to see the truth that is in your son, Jesus Christ. To see that he is is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be adored. He is worthy to be called Lord and have absolute authority over our lives. Because it was in his good pleasure that he came to save us. 
It was in his good pleasure that he is the Christ, the anointed one, who is the mediator between us and you, Father. And as the ushers are coming up, I pray over the offering, and I ask you that you will allow this these little trinkets, I don't care if it's a dollar or 50 cents, to glorify you, to glorify your kingdom, to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, to further your gospel, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that we will give and give willingly and freely because we know what you have given to us. And this is not even a, this is only a small recognition that worth nothing in comparison to what you have given us, which is your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will look upon our hearts and see that we give because we adore you. In Christ's name, amen.